The various opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests, contributors, and participants of the Behind the Warrior podcast are their own and are intended for informational purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, viewpoints, or policies of the EOD Warrior Foundation or its employees and volunteers. Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Maria Shabla, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Eris Macris, Vice President of Research, Development, and Engineering, and the Chief Technology Officer at MedEng. Dr. Macris holds master's and PhD degrees in mechanical engineering, specializing in explosions and protection against blast effects, with over 30 years of related experience. He has led numerous programs related to the design of advanced personal protective systems to protect against IEDs, landmines, and explosive threats. He and his team have developed the EOD 7B, 8, nine, and most recently, the EOD-10 generation bomb suit, as well as the SRS-5, TAC-6, and a variety of personal blast sensors. Dr. Macris has been an active member of several equipment performance standards, including the NIJ bomb suit standard, NATO and UN working groups, and a member of the IABTI advisory board. He's an active engineer in the field of personal protection against blast effects and has presented in numerous scientific and training events internationally. He leads a team of 30 engineers, technologists, and scientists in designing, developing, testing, and introducing new products. Welcome to the podcast, Eris. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Maria. Oh, you're so welcome. Well, I always like to start from the beginning. So can you tell, tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, um, sure. Uh, I, I grew up in Montreal, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Um, uh, I was a, a good student and active uh, physically. I enjoyed the news, watching the news, following the news, reading about current events, reading about international events, uh, reading about terrorism when it was first getting active in the 70s and 80s and all that. And I went to school. uh, All my schooling was uh, pretty much in Montreal. Uh, Finally getting into university, McGill University, where I did a mechanical engineering undergrad degree and I liked uh, some of the research work I uh, got exposed to during one of the projects which was explosions and detonations cool when you're a kid (laughs) and I decided to do a master's and after doing that uh, for the next uh, 18 months then I got lured into doing a lot more of explosions and preventing accidental uh, detonations and pipelines and coal mines and grain elevators. Uh, and that was uh, really a lot of the work I did under my Ph.D. degree uh, while I was uh, in university at McGill University. Wow. How interesting. So, so current and social events really kind of like had some kind of direction in, in what you were interested in studying and leading you to explosives. 
That is very um, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was very much interested in uh, in police uh, issues, uh, military issues, uh, history, uh, law and order. And um, so somehow my, my studies brought me into an area that was very compatible to what I liked. Wow. And uh, uh, which was uh, engineering and something to do with... Uh, military and uh, and all that exciting stuff of explosions. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what's more exciting than an explosion? Really? And, uh, yeah, so that's how I got into that field, but I didn't know anything about EOD and bomb suits. Uh, I was just uh, doing it from the point of view of accidental uh, explosion prevention. Interesting. Now, you've been with MedEng since day one, and you have a humorous story of how your career with MedEng started. Can you tell our listeners about your first invitation to help design and develop a bomb suit, and what was your initial reaction? Yeah, sure. That that was actually an eye-opening experience, uh, but uh, comical nevertheless. I, I was doing various uh, projects and initiatives for my professor who was basically a consultant to various uh, groups that needed to find out more about preventing explosions. And, and one of my um, side, uh, I guess, side experiments uh, started um, blasting and exploding different types of foams. And I did my work as a good uh, uh, scientist uh, doing research. And then one day... Um, uh, my professor says, okay, well, you're going to present all this, uh, all these findings with the different materials that attenuate uh, blast waves. You're going to present it to, uh, to the sponsor of, the, of this work. And I said, who's that? Well, it's the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, who was doing R&D and explosive uh, mitigation. And um, this guy, Richard Labe, who's... Uh, um, the president of MedEng, they make bomb suits. So I said, what do you mean? What's a bomb suit? Uh, something that explodes in a suit? Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, what are bomb suits? I says, well, uh, people uh, like the RCMP or other police or military, when they find an explosive device that they want to neutralize or investigate, they wear these suits called uh, EOD suits or bomb suits. And they go in front of the bomb. I said, are you serious? Are, are, are people that crazy that they'll go in front of a bomb? <laughs> yeah, I know. There's people who do that for a living. I said, oh, my God. Do they, do they know anything about the science of this? And uh, I said, no, no, no. We'll, we'll show you the bomb suit. And then, uh, you know, a couple of days later, um, here comes... Uh, a uh, couple of uh, men uh, from the RCMP and MedEng uh, with a big heavy bag, and they open it, they put it on the desk, and uh, they open it up, and there comes out this really armored uh, suit. Uh, first time I see it with a nice big helmet, and that's the bomb suit. And it was quite fascinating because back then in the uh, mid-'80s, late-'80s, uh, we weren't, as a society, exposed to... Uh, IEDs and provide explosive devices or uh, bombs going off on a regular basis. Uh, in the news, it wasn't a topic of, you know, a conversation or interest that you would find on a regular basis. So it's the first time I see that there's actually people who go in front of these devices and expect to survive by wearing this suit and helmet. 
so that's how I uh, my introduction to this world was. Wow. And yeah. that is unbelievable. What a what a great story. I love it. And um, so today, the most current bomb suit is the EUD-10. Can you tell us about the research and engineering that went into developing this suit? Well, I, 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 let me let me take a step back from from the onset. Um, I was asked to join MedEng, mm-hmm. and I resisted a couple of years, but I, I kept on doing research. And I realized when I finally got introduced to what MedEnch does that there's a whole underserved community around the world of end users that was putting their life in danger, um, going and confronting bombs, wearing some kind of equipment, and they didn't know anything about the danger they were putting themselves in, nor did they know if the equipment that they were given and asked to wear uh, would protect their lives. Mm -hmm. So there was a great opportunity uh, to actually make a difference here. And we, we try to understand the science behind both the threat, basically the bomb, the IED, and also the human uh, vulnerability to this threat. Mm-hmm. And where engineering comes in is finding the right uh, set of materials, technologies, uh, uh, whatever it is, uh, architecture that can take uh, this aggressive and life-threatening engineering threat on the outside and mitigate it or uh, really attenuate it to the degree that the body, which is on the inside, uh, can have a higher chance of survival. And uh, so now when it comes to that, then what do you have to do? Well, you have to look at the explosion for what it offers. The explosion has blast pressure, it has fragments, it has a fireball. And there's other things like the collision of the explosion with the body or whatever uh, that induces impact and acceleration. So all those things are can be measured by engineering means that could be quantified. Um, they could be understood. They could be characterized in terms of how they behave for different sizes of explosions or different types of bombs or different distances away. At the same time, we look at the human body and we say, okay, well, if pressure can compress things and cause a whole lot of damage because you have, say, a shock wave or a blast wave that's going around or through your body, well, what parts of the human body are susceptible to being compressed and being pulled apart or ripped apart by a blast wave going through them. So then we look at the human body and its vulnerabilities to the blast pressure wave, the fragments. Where is a fragment dangerous? Where is it not or less dangerous? What about acceleration and impact? What parts of the body should we be concerned about being impacted and what parts or accelerated, and what parts do we have to care less about? Uh, fireball that we all associate with an explosion. Well, uh, it's intuitive that you got to protect the whole body against this fireball. Well, how much? Uh, how dangerous is this fireball compared to, say, the pressure or the fragments or something else? So we look at all these things. We look at the threat. We characterize it. Uh, and there's that's a lot of engineering science, which was right down my alley. Mm-hmm. And then the human body, which really was something that I had to learn 
based on a lot of literature and other work that people had done. And the key is to find all the different technologies that you could put inside a suit, not a building, not an armored vehicle, inside a suit that somebody can actually wear and move around and provide protection against the different threats. Now, different parts of the body are more vulnerable to certain threats, so they have to be protected accordingly, which means when you look at a bomb suit or a bomb helmet uh, or other parts of the legs or arms, they have different materials inside, different levels of protection for fragments and other things, depending upon whether they are vulnerable to being injured by the four different threats arising from an explosion. And, and what are so, those four different threats? It's blast overpressure. It's the fragments that we can all relate to, the shrapnel. It's the impact, which is the collision uh, of the blast wave or the explosion wave with a human body and all the acceleration that it induces. For instance, traumatic brain injury that we've all uh, been introduced to, uh, head concussions, um, all those things that can happen when something gets rapidly accelerated or uh, blast pressure goes inside the brain or the, the skull. So that those are three of the threats. And then there's the, the fourth threat that we call the um, catch-all threat, which includes heat from the fireball. It could include, it could include the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, uh, nuclear um, uh, agent dispersal. It can include heat stress or anything else. So uh, the, a, a properly designed personal protective suit and helmet has to provide some level of a tailored uh, protection against the different threats, but only to the extent that you can have a solution that somebody can actually wear, walk around, and do their job. Mm-hmm. Right. So, of course, mobility is such an important I- issue um, with the bomb suit. Can you tell us about the mobility of the curtain bomb suit compared to previous uh, versions? Yeah, there, there, there's an interesting history about that. The the history of uh, bomb suits uh, probably goes back, uh, you know, maybe eighty years. Probably uh, uh, World War One, World War Two. But uh, really, the modern bomb suit era um, really started in the last few decades. The the people who had the greatest need for uh, bomb suits for police and military uh, in the 70s and 80s were the, the British uh, because they had the IRA problem, the uh, Irish Republican Army, where they had a massive bombing campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, they... the the Brits had to respond by protecting their the people that were sending to defuse these bombs. Now, the technology or the understanding about what I previously described on the threat of the explosion and also the human vulnerability didn't really exist to a sophisticated extent. So the solution to a bomb suit was really throw a bunch of uh, Kevlar or various fabrics and maybe some metal armor inside uh, something that resembles... Um, 
uh, an apron or a jacket, uh, some trousers, and send them in front of a device. Mm. Uh, the helmet would be basically a heavy piece of glass uh, mounted on some kind of helmet and some contraption. Naturally, this was very heavy. It was very marginally effective at actually protecting, and, and it was unusable. Wow. And what would happen is uh, that most of the users would be issued some suit along those lines, and they would find every excuse in the book not to wear it because they couldn't do their job safely. Mm -hmm. the, the wearing the bomb suit and helmet on its own would be a distraction to their ability to carry out their job uh, efficiently, safely, with full awareness. So over time, when, when the Canadians faced uh, uh, a terrorist threat, a domestic terrorist threat uh, in, uh, in the province of Quebec uh, uh, in the uh, mid-70s and, and a bit later, they realized that they had no ability to protect the end users uh, when they sent them in front of uh, an explosive device. They looked at the technology that existed in the, in the UK, United Kingdom, and they, they didn't like it. The end users would not wear it. Mm -hmm. And the Canadians uh, at the time decided to invest uh, a lot of money uh, in uh, seeding different programs to come up with new solutions to how to carry out and protect uh, bomb disposal, protect the users in the role of bomb disposal. And uh, one of those companies that they, uh, they received um, uh, with uh, some R&D funding was MedEdge Systems, which was uh, funded, uh, founded uh, in 1981 uh, by Richard Labbe. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, the problem was provide real protection based on sound engineering principles that people can actually wear and make it user-friendly, make it mobile. Because if we didn't, then people simply wouldn't use these suits. And that's how MedEng Systems got started. Wow. So it doesn't sound like there was much of a foundation to that, that initial suit that was being used when you guys decided to pursue this. No, mm -hmm. the only foundation that was there is how not to do it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Wow. There, essentially, what people did, and all with good intentions, but limited with uh, whatever knowledge or education they had at that time, mm -hmm. was take a piece of body armor, uh, find some tailors, and extend the body armor to make it into a jacket and add some sleeves. And then, oh, well, we got to protect the lower body, so let's create a, some trousers and stuff a whole bunch of materials in there. Oh, uh, we got to protect the, the torso more than the legs, so let's put some, uh, you know, fiberglass or some uh, ceramics. Uh, it really didn't exist back then, but really metal armor. And there you go. You got a bomb suit, though, at least a suit part. And the helmet was something similar. They took a military helmet made out of Kevlar or some uh, fiberglass, and then they try to put something transparent so you could see through it, and often they put a whole bunch of armor, metal, or other things around the face to protect the rest of the face. So that, that didn't do the job. It wasn't a good foundation, mm -hmm. and we knew we had to start from scratch. Wow. I guess, you know, as, as a layperson, I'm obviously, you know, not have any training in, uh, in EOD, but my... One question would be, there There seems to be a lot of different varieties of explosives. So, I mean, that 
I can't even comprehend how much research or testing you must have had to do to to be able to create a suit that can protect a human being from all this huge variety of explosives. Um, you're right. If we had to design a suit that was tailored to every type of explosive, it would be a very challenging feat. Mm-hmm. So we don't uh, we don't pretend to say that we have designed a suit that has been tested against every type of bomb or explosive. Mm-hmm. What we try and do is find a reasonable range of blast uh, that a human should be able to survive uh, with modern technology, mm-hmm. with engineering science, understanding the human body vulnerabilities and understanding the threat that an explosion can pose. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in so doing, we also look at, well, what is the most prevalent type of explosive device? How big is it? Let's start with that. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., for example, the most prevalent type of device for many decades now has been the pipe bomb. Um, and the pipe bomb is uh, finite. It's not a full pipe. It's, you know, it's a small galvanized steel pipe or something with two end caps. And it has a smoke, uh, smokeless powder or uh, other types of gunpowder, sometimes high explosive and that's really the size of it, and it's a few pounds uh, at best, or it could be a few blocks of TNT or dynamite. And that's what most of the, the highest frequency of explosives are. Now, uh, there are all the military munitions, as you can imagine, in many different shapes, sizes, and forms that are launched from different devices and, uh, and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you can't. You can't protect against everything. Right. But for the, for the devices where technology can provide some protection, that's what we focus on. And therefore, you look at an amount of explosive that's reasonable, and, and you look at what is the blast pressure wave look like from, from typical explosions at distances and amounts that should be survivable. Mm-hmm. And then we focus on taking this this explosion wave, this blast wave, and mangling it down with technology to make it benign and not so hurtful, if at all, eliminate it altogether so that somebody can survive on the inside. Very interesting. So, so a, clearly a lot of research and, and development has gone into this suit that we have today. Uh, yeah, clearly, mm-hmm. and it's an ongoing process. Right. Um, so, so just to give you a bit of indication, uh, we need a lot of different fields of expertise to get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need mechanical engineering. We need materials engineering. Uh, we need uh, textile engineering, composites. Uh, we need uh, sometimes we need uh, some uh, ceramics and other types of uh, armor. Uh, uh, if you look at what goes in a suit, it's not just a bunch of materials. There's a lot of functionality. So you need electronics. Uh, we have electronics engineering. Uh, we have people who program. There's uh, firmware designers, uh, software designers that make all that functionality that controls the remote control. We have communications engineers that uh, basically design the system that permits for communication to the bomb tech from the command post and vice versa. 
there's communication with robots. Uh, there's uh, emerging technologies that are going to be integrated into bombsuits, such as heads-up display, where the bomb tech is going to have some lenses in front of their eyes, and they can be receiving x-rays remotely. They could be receiving uh, 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 architecture of a building they're entering, or or the makeup of an explosive device they're confronting. Wow. Uh, th- there's cameras that operate in daylight just to capture evidence and transmit information to the command post, but they also work in nighttime, night vision. And there's thermal cameras that might be able to see what's hot and what's not so hot, which may guide uh, the bomb tech to have better situational awareness in terms of where to look for what might be more risky and what may not be, or what may have some electric power in it from a battery, or what's cold and you know basically doesn't show up as a thermal threat. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole plethora of technologies I mentioned there, which involves many different disciplines, uh, where if you want to design a, a proper modern technology system that's also ergonomic, uh, you need to have access to it. And in, in our team, we basically have experts, not maybe not necessarily teams of experts, but we have experts in all those fields uh, within our ranks that we use in concurrently developing uh, either the helmet or the suit or the whole system so that it works. It works from the protection side. It works from how you manufacture it, and uh, it holds out during a blast. And more importantly, it's something that end users will tolerate or will like wearing in front of a bomb. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has to be comfortable within a reasonable period of time, typical of the missions they have to undertake. And it cannot become a burden or a distraction to their work. Mm -hmm. They need to do their job safely. So how do you do it? Well, we have also human factors engineering that we employ. And all of these things, whatever we come up with, we test along the way. We blow it up. We'll take samples of the suit and the helmet, and we'll go into blast chambers, and we'll blow them up and use instrumented mannequins to see if the pressure that is on the outside is significantly reduced to a level where it's not injurious on the inside. We will take all the materials in the different parts of the suit, which have a different armor composition, and we will shoot them with different fragments or simulated explosive devices or fragment simulators. So we have a ballistics lab where we fire fragments of different sizes, typical uh, of some of the fragments that may be experienced and as stipulated by standards such as that from the NIJ, National Institute of Justice, so that we can ensure that the protection that they expect to get and we advertise actually holds up in reality. Mm -hmm. So we'll do this over and over until we get it right. Uh, We have drop towers. So any helmet is supposed to prevent concussion uh, or the acceleration transmitting to the head to a high level. Uh, So uh, what we do is we when we come up with our helmet and all the components and the impact liners and comfort liners and retention system that goes in the helmet, well, we'll put it on an instrumented head form and let it slide down a drop tower and collide on a hard surface at different locations and see if the acceleration transmitted to the head has been significantly reduced 
so that the person wearing the helmet, potentially in an explosion, survives or doesn't get injured as much as that person could have if they weren't wearing a helmet, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what we do all around. All the threats are tested for mm-hmm. uh, after we finish designing them. So there, there's a whole slew of expertise that's required to understand the threat, understand the human body, design the technology that will mitigate the threat to an acceptable level, and then test for it. And once you do all that, then you got to manufacture it in a way, according to standards, that will hold up during an actual explosion, during a blast, and through the excessive abuse that the suits and helmets go through every day, either in training, uh, in, in uh, schools like the hazardous device school, or the single event of an explosion, wherever it may happen. I hope I didn't overwhelm you, but no, that's a no, bit of the flavor of what we do in the background. That is amazing. Um, so I guess what I was kind of thinking while I was listening to you is, um, can you tell us about the most current suit and some of the features? Because I know we had talked about number one, which would be how do you keep a human being cool in that suit? And I think you had mentioned that, that it had changed over the years. Sure. Uh, there, there's many different uh, methods of keeping people cool. And just to address that um, a, a little bit, uh, I mentioned the human factors. People have to feel comfortable in wearing the suit. Their head cannot be squeezed. Their back cannot break. Uh, they cannot be tilting forward. They got to be able to wear it for a reasonable period of time or, you know, an hour or so. Uh, and, and not feel overly burdened. At the same time, when you're wearing something that's a lot heavier, often in hot climates, mm-hmm. uh, you get very hot. And when a person is exerting energy to carry out some work and, and wear a suit that has a certain weight of 50, 60 pounds or so, depending on the size, uh, you'll generate sweat and you, you'll get hot if you're a bomb tech. So um, it, it's important that, first of all, bomb techs are in good shape because you're effectively uh, carrying an extra set of weights that you're not used to when you're carrying out a job and you got to keep cool and collected. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we do what we can to keep people cool, regardless of what condition they're at. And traditionally, over the last, I guess, uh, 20, 30 years or so, uh, people have used uh, um, undergarments next to the body that had uh, tubes that circulated uh, ice-cold water from uh, an ice pack reservoir. So there was a, an ice pack uh, that would have a motor, and as the ice would melt, this cold water from uh, the reservoir would be taken by the motor and circulated through all the tubes that were next to the body on the undergarment, and that would cool the body temperature. It would take away the heat from the body, and that heat would return back to the reservoir to melt more ice and and basically keep the body cool for a period of time. Well, that's that's only good if you have access to ice and uh, the you know the, the deployments of military personnel in the Middle East, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places over the last few decades has demonstrated that ice is not so simple right. to get in deserts or or faraway lands. Mm. Uh, so it has its limitations. It's good for an organized bomb squad uh, uh, in, in the continental United States or domestically anywhere, 
but once you start deploying, it becomes a, a problem. And sometimes you may forget to create the ice, and then what do you do? Mm. Uh, so the EOD-10 has basically tried to come up with a solution that minimizes the user uh, discomfort and improves that, that whole operational use uh, philosophy. Uh, we said the human factors have to be good. It has to be mobile. It can't be too heavy. The joints have to be flexible. Well, you provide the protection and you got to keep the individual there comfortable and cool. Cool doesn't mean you have to freeze them like when you walk into a shopping center in the United States in the summer where you actually have to buy a jacket. Uh, that might be cool a marketing technique. Want, yeah, yeah. Cool means that you keep the core body temperature at a reasonable range. Something like what we refer to as room temperature. Something like, you know, 70 degrees or 75 degrees. Not 95, not 105. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the idea is that what can we do to, uh, we were challenged by the end user community in the States, particularly the U.S. military, the Department of Defense. What can you do when we wear the jacket, when we wear a suit to have instant, uh, access to some level of ventilation or cooling or something? We don't want to have to make ice. We don't have to carry the ice or wear undergarments. What can you do? Mm -hmm. Now, in the helmet from the very beginning, when MedAnts got started from the 1990, 1981, we introduced the concept of ventilation. So we introduced ventilation, uh, basically of ambient air inside the helmet so that air could go and provide some fresh air in front of the end user. He can uh, breathe some fresh air while the, the person, he or she is doing their job. And that air can also be used to demist the visor from all the sweat and per per perspiration and exhaling. So ventilation in the helmet was not new, uh, it was improved over EOD-7, EOD-8, EOD-9, and EOD-10 uh, to require uh, less power and be more effective. Uh, but ventilation and cooling of the torso, which is where most of the heat is generated, uh, was relatively new. So what we did is we integrated ventilation in the jacket of the EOD-10 bomb suit so that when a user dons a jacket, dons their helmet, and plugs into the power supply that's on the suit, automatically they're in an air-conditioned uh, system, a microclimate system, where you get nice ambient air jetting across your back and around your hair in front of your face to remove the sweat and keep the person cool. And it turns out that that's very effective. You, you, you see that people wear the suit with ventilation mm -hmm. and without ventilation, and you can see uh, very different sweating patterns. In one case, they'll get their T-shirt drenched, and the other case, they'll have no sweat at all. Wow. And this is with ambient air. What is just ambient, ambient air? air? What is ambient yeah, air? Yeah, just uh, basically the environmental air that you have around you. Just taking outside air uh -huh. uh, and and using that just to like a fan to to blow against uh, your body. Oh, wow. That that oh. air that air that's driven by by a motor through very small channels across uh, across the torso mm -hmm. basically takes the, the the heat out of the body and any sweat and draws it away, which basically permits the body to cool. So it's evaporative cooling. That's uh, the term that's used. And and uh, and uh, the remote control unit that's 
part of the technology on the EOD-10 uh, system, the EOD-10 suit and helmet, uh, permits the operator, person wearing the suit, to control how much air is flowing through their helmet for the comfort of their head, for demisting purposes of the visor, and how much air do they need inside the jacket? And, uh, do they need more or less? For instance, if it's cold outside and the person's not sweating much, mm-hmm. you don't need to bring in cold, cold air and freeze the person. If it's hot, then maybe you want to keep it on a higher level and the fans work at a higher level. For instance, on the helmet, one of the most uh, popular features that we've had for, for decades now is the, the turbo, the turbo feature. When somebody starts overheating and they need a, a blast of air because they're doing something stressful mm-hmm. or something that generated fatigue and a lot of uh, uh, heat generation, they press the button, the, the turbo ventilation feature, and then all of a sudden you get a gust of air for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, depending on the settings. And the person calms down, catches their breath, and feels a lot better. Mm-hmm. So that's how we deal with ventilation in the helmet and, that, and in the EOD-10 uh, jacket. Uh, we also have ventilation that's uh, controlled by the user inside the jacket uh, and thereby negating the need to have an additional chiller or other form of ventilation. Now, there are chillers, many refrigerators that say the U.S. military has, which basically uh, can chill water and you don't need ice, but they make a lot of noise. So if you can imagine a small refrigerator humming through your uh, your waist oh my gosh. Uh, to send hot water, you know, cool water around your body, uh, that is a solution and that is used in some situations where it makes sense to Interesting. That that is very interesting. Just all all the research that has gone into to making this new suit. It's it's just really fascinating. Um, one thing I want to go back to is you mentioned that a bomb tech has to be fit, and I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and I think many in our audience they have had personal experiences with blast waves um, throughout their career and um, may not know much about the effects on the human body. So I wanted to kind of switch gears and if, see if you could just lightly, lightly touch on blast wave effects on the human body. Well, uh, sure. Uh, when an explosion happens and a, a device goes off, regardless of the distance, uh, there's going to be a blast wave, which is the front where the energy is released. So this blast wave basically is a leading indicator that something bad just happened. And eventually that blast wave hits the anything on its, on its side. It'll hit the human body. And if the human body is unprotected, uh, that blast wave will, uh, in a matter of a few milliseconds, a few thousandths of a second, uh, will uh, reflect, go around, squeeze, compress, and try and transmit within the human body and around the human body. So the parts of the human body that uh, are most vulnerable to uh, the blast pressure wave are parts like the lungs that contain gas because if something contains gas you can compress it your flesh is not as vulnerable to being squeezed or pressed for a fraction of a second but the lungs if you have a blast wave uh, go through your body and enter the lungs um, then what it does is that the interfaces of the different uh, media that we have different materials within our human body it causes a lot of damage it causes local bleeding 
it causes uh, things like spalling or cavitation that people may be familiar with in other fields. And that causes the, the, the skin and the flesh internally to start to bleed. And in the lungs, if there's little bleeding that's undetected typically because you can't see the bleeding from the outside, that may cause suffocation eventually because your lung cavity gets full of liquid until you can't breathe anymore. And the, there's, uh, you know, a lot of historical evidence uh, where people have survived the blast and uh, a few hours later they, they had uh, passed away because they didn't know that they were bleeding internally and, and you know, that, that caused to a fatal outcome. So what we try and do is uh, things like the lungs, uh, some of the organs inside the, the torso, the chest cavity, and the eardrums, which are the most susceptible to a blast wave. Everybody knows about eardrum perforation mm. uh, from loud sounds, let alone an explosion. So we try and protect all those regions uh, of the body. Uh, so the blast pressure wave is something that's really unique to an explosion. Uh, fragments, fragments can reach people at very high distances. Everybody's familiar with a penetration. And of course, if you have a fragment penetrating your body, it's going to be bad depending upon where it penetrates, it could be fatal. Mm -hmm. So we protect the body at different levels. Parts of the body that are more susceptible to being seriously or fatally injured, we provide very high levels of protection. That's why in a bomb suit, you'll see big pieces of armor in the front chest and the groin plate. The, the helmet, the helmet visor, because the head underneath doesn't want to get penetrated, any injury there could prove very, very uh, critically injurious or fatal, uh, has very high levels of armor. Whereas in the sleeves and uh, lower legs, well, we can give, uh, you know, we, we can relax a bit and only protect against fragments to a lower level of protection so that the person can have some mobility and not carry a lot of weight. So we, if, if you look from the outside and you look at a bombster and a bomb helmet, you might say, oh, wow, that's a lot of stuff on the person. But actually, there's layers of materials and technology that have been intentionally introduced so that this nasty blast wave that can cause internal injuries uh, is, is basically converted into something that's far less injurious. 70, 80, 90% plus reductions of the pressure. And on the fragmentation side, we, we put a lot of armor in parts of the body that can sustain a very serious or fatal injury. So when you look at a bomb suit, you see these big pieces of armor in certain parts. And then other parts are soft and mobile and, and tactile. Mm -hmm. The other threat is the impact threat, which is when the shockwave hits Whatever it interacts with, it will induce a very high level of acceleration. If somebody's not protected, such as such as in places like suicide bombings, you've seen uh, some of the victims over there, uh, not typically bomb techs, but uh, innocent civilians, uh, they, they lose limbs, mm -hmm. uh, they get amputated because the acceleration from the collision of the shockwave and the human body is so large that it basically rips off parts of the body. Mm. Now, it, it, somebody wearing a bomb suit will never have that happen uh, for any kind of reasonable device that they're addressing mm -hmm. because the idea is that the bomb suit is supposed to reduce the acceleration that this collision of the shockwave will induce on the human body. So what the bomb suit does to the head is reduce the acceleration of the head by 90, 95%. 
uh, it will reduce the acceleration to the chest, which are, which can cause lung injuries and heart injuries and other organ injuries very significantly. It will prevent the head from moving rapidly and snapping your neck. So you, because of the weight of the helmet and how it's designed and it interfaces with the collar of the jacket, then the, 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 the helmet will not move as much. It will move slower. So that means that the head on the inside uh, through the retention system and impact liner is also not going to move a lot. So we bring down the level of acceleration from the impact threat or the impact injury significantly reduced. When we look at the back, the spinal cord, we all suffer from back injuries from time to time. Well, you could imagine if a bomb tech is accelerated, which they will be when an explosion happens, a bomb tech or anybody will be pushed back and depending on the size could be pushed back many feet or hundreds of feet. Mm -hmm. Well, let's focus on the many feet because hundreds of feet is typically a big problem. Uh, They will fall down and hurt themselves. And if they land on their back, Mm. well, you can have uh, spinal cord injuries. So the entire back of the jacket of a bomb suit is protected against impact injury, not only fragmentation injury, but impact injury. So we put different types of materials inside beneath the armor that is is intended to stop the fragments and the pressure and the fire threat so that the spinal cord, uh, as much as we can, has a very high level of protection against impact injury. And if we look at the heat and fireball, well, you can imagine if you go in the middle of a fireball and your skin is exposed, well, it's going to burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it's important to cover the entire body with with the materials that will be resistant to the the fire threat or the heat flash, at least for a short period of time. And fortunately, that technology of materials exists, and that's typically not how people get injured or suffer anything more serious. So hopefully that explains a little bit of the unique nature of the threats of an exploding uh, explosion uh, on a human body. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was really interesting. And I it it seems like there's such a balance between the different vulnerabilities of the human body and and like you said, what parts need more protection or not, and just the technologies to provide what you know what's needed. So that is fascinating. Um, so I want to bring up MedEng. Oh, go ahead. Did you want to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to comment. Maria, you're a good student. <laughs> you, you got it. I'm listening we, and taking notes. <laughs> yeah, the, the protection uh, over the entire suit is tailored to what part of the body is underneath, what its vulnerabilities are, mm-hmm. and what the threat can cause. Yeah. And, of course, we are limited by how much weight the person can carry so we are really diligent in putting uh, the minimum amount of protection that's good enough. And if people want to add more protection, uh, by all means, we have it. But we don't want to provide too little, and we want to make sure that people actually will wear the suit for the mission duration. Well, I think I think a lot of bomb techs that, that might be listening to this episode, I think they will find a lot of reassurance that you are so diligent in, in what you're doing, um, trying to provide the best protection for our techs. So we appreciate that so much. Um, I, I want to take a turn here, and I want to mention that MedEng is a big proponent for education within the EOD community. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the types of trainings you offer? Sure. Um 
Well, uh, Medange obviously has its technical training representatives and product specialists that really focus on the training of the equipment. So we want to make sure that people understand the equipment, they know how to use it properly, and and, uh, they will use it safely and optimally to do their job. And that could be a suit, a helmet, could be some tools, a remote manipulator, a robot, whatever it is. So that's one level of training that that's more generic. Um, uh, another type of training that is fairly unique uh, for Medange is the blast effects training, which is a lot of what we've been discussing over the last little while. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the users are either police officers or um, uh, military personnel that get assigned a role. They choose explosive ordnance disposal for their own reasons. They find it interesting. It may be compatible with their personality. They want to make a difference, save people, all that. Uh, but they're not scientists. And uh, it, it's important to educate them at what they're confronting. Mm-hmm. Because if they understand the threat in a sort of like empirical but technical Way So when I say empirical, I'm saying you don't have to be a scientist with a PhD to understand it, but you can relate to it and you get the message. So if we inform people about the dangers and we show them some, some charts about what blast pressure can do, where fragmentation could be injurious, what impact can do and how the body can accelerate, and what you can do as a bomb tech to reduce that threat, then... They might make wiser choices in terms of how they approach the device, how much time they stay over the device, what distance they keep in order to improve their survivability or reduce the threat potential, what types of equipment they might use. Use remote means whenever possible, but if you need to get close, well, use other tools and really avoid, you know, a hand uh, approach where it's a manual approach of somebody clipping wires and all these things like you see in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our job is to inform them, educate them in general about what happens when an explosion occurs, how the threat dissipates with distance, where is it more dangerous, where is it less dangerous, and then also show them uh, the human side. This is why... Uh, you need to wear the suit. And this is why it's a bit heavier in the jacket because we're trying to protect your chest Mm -hmm. and your heart and all those vital organs underneath. So don't go removing the plate because it's more comfortable. No, you need that protection. Mm -hmm. So we explain to people why they need to wear the protection, why it's designed a certain way. So then they have a certain confidence that, okay, this is not just redundant weight. There's a purpose behind this. Right. And they go down there and they feel a certain level of security and confidence that if this thing goes off, my squad, uh, my military unit, my sheriff has provided me with the best possible equipment and, and training so that I can do my job safer uh, relative to not being informed. If you don't know what the threat can do to you, then you might do stupid things like start grabbing the bomb and putting it next to your chest so it could be closer so you could see it better, mm-hmm. which, which is really bad. So we train them on the threat. We give them confidence on the testing that's gone 
behind the suit and why the suit needs to be the way it is so that they have confidence that they are using the best equipment they can get. They are informed in terms of what to do and what not to do. And along with the training they receive from their school in how to dispose of devices, they'll make better choices. They'll have peace of mind that they have the best equipment. They understand why the equipment is there and they'll make better choices to improve their survivability should something go off. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. so from the very beginning, actually, uh, this education was missing. And it, it was part of the appeal of why a, a joint med edge systems at, uh, right after my, uh, my PhD. Uh, I went on an exploratory trip around the world, and we, we hit the many places in Southeast Asia and some places in the States. And it was scary how little people knew about what they were confronting as far as the threat. And people were ill-equipped with equipment that wasn't protective, and they really didn't appreciate the dangers they were putting themselves, sometimes uh, avoidably. Uh, so it, there was a purpose where I can apply my engineering knowledge, um, some of the science I'd picked up on mitigating explosions, and, and try and make a difference in an area that had been well underserved for you know many, many decades. So uh, I'm glad to, to see that in most schools, they learn some level of blast effects, what, basically what is the threat, what the explosion can do, uh, what the human body needs to be protected against, etc. Uh, but that is a, an education that keeps on requiring repetition. Mm-hmm. Uh, safety requires training and repetition because there's complacency that naturally as humans uh, we will embrace over time. We get a false sense of security. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. you might, but in case something goes off, which is rare, by the way, in case something goes off, you really want to stack the odds in your favor in terms of how you did your job, the equipment you used, and don't take any shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's such an important piece of this. And I, I love that you you are providing this type of educa- education and, and just refreshing the, the basic concepts. Um, and then an, another part of that is just understanding um, you know, why we have the bomb suit. So I think that's wonderful. Um, and MedEng is clearly in the business of saving lives, and that's what your whole mission is about. Um, and I kind of want to um, bring back, you know, we started the interview with your interest in, in current social events. And uh, I learned that you recently received a note from a contact in, in the Ukraine. And that said, um, Visor saved a life in, in Ukraine. Can you tell our listeners um, how that note made you feel? It, it came out of the blue, uh, sure. Uh, we got an email and it was uh, like, hey, uh, we need to replace uh, this visor. And we're saying, what's this? And we look at the visor and it was all fragmented. Uh, some it, Basically, the outside of the visor had taken in some fragment hits mm-hmm. and it was a bit charred uh, with, I guess, an explosion. And then there was a note, oh, thank you for saving uh, saving our lives. We, we use your equipment every day. And that was an example where some Ukrainian bomb tech, uh, well, we're not sure if it's police or military, mm-hmm. uh, was trying to dispose uh, a particular uh, 
a Russian uh, device that was left behind amongst uh, many tens of thousands, and one of them went off. And uh, because the person was wearing the EOD-9 suit and helmet, um, the person survived and kept on doing their job. Um, obviously, it could not have been a, a very big device, but any explosive device, even very small devices in close proximity, if you're unprotected, can kill somebody. Uh, so uh, this person got exposed to some kind of uh, device that was uh, probably of the order of uh, a pound, uh, plus or minus, uh, you know, uh, half a pound. Uh, it had fragments on the outside, and it went off, and it uh, damaged the suit superficially, but also damaged the visor. The suit was readily usable in the user's eyes, and all they wanted to do is replace the visor so it could go on another day and keep on trying to uh, make his country and uh, the place where his citizens live safer. Wow. So so that is amazing, and, and I'm sure you got that to him, what, what he was requesting. What, uh, yeah, another yeah. Visor? We, we're, we're happy to serve. Uh, I mean, th- these are good news uh, situations. Yeah. News like that we take to our staff, and uh, because our staff don't necessarily see what's going on right. uh, at the user level and uh, with a client, so we, we, we make sure we, we share this with our employees, the people at the plant who are just sewing or just cutting uh, composites or whatever it is. Uh, they, they should know that what they do matters, the quality of what they do matters in order to ensure that everything is at the standards that it's designed to be because ultimately there's a human being's life that depends on it. Wow. So it's it's really motivating. It is. I mean, just the impact that you all are making uh, on the EOD community. You know, it's it's saving lives. So that is amazing. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to see if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the Saves Club. Okay, yeah. The, the Saves Club is something we've instituted uh, in, uh, in recent years, I'd say probably about half a dozen years or so. And it uh, originates uh, from uh, the, uh, the Safari Line Group, which is uh, the parent company that uh, owns MedEng. Um, in the body armor industry, uh, Safari Land, which is a, one of the biggest suppliers of body armor in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, basically had a program called the Saves Club when a police officer uh, would be saved in the sense that injury would be avoided altogether or a fatal outcome was avoided. So the body armor was able to save that person's life. Uh, they got inducted after an investigation to ensure that it's credible and all the facts were gathered. They got inducted into the Saves Club. And in the bomb tech world, um, they've been underserved, like I said, from many, many fronts. Um, and also there's a lot of bomb technicians that have been blown up. Well, some have uh, faced... Uh, very large explosive devices and there was an overmatch and they didn't make it. Many have made it. Mm-hmm. And their stories um, need to be told too. Uh, the bomb suit is there so that people can survive and live another day and rejoin their families. So when that happens, we, we invite people to approach us and give us all the facts around what happened. We'll do an investigation, corroborate the evidence, and then we want to induct them in the SAFES Club. So in a way, it serves multiple purposes. One is you got saved, 
from this piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. We really were happy that we made a difference, and we want to recognize that. Uh, congratulations to you and your family and your squad for uh, you know for the fact that you're around to live another day and serve them another day, mm -hmm. and and also it's a big booster. Uh, for the morale of uh, our staff. And it's also uh, a validator, something basically that tells other bomb techs that may doubt the value of wearing a suit that weighs 50, 60 pounds or so. Uh, it shows to them that it makes a difference, that this person got blown up in this situation, this was the device, this is the circumstances behind the incident, and many of them can relate because they've been involved in something similar or they know somebody that has. And I say, geez, I try and do everything right. But in spite of all my training, if this device goes off because of a remote uh, control or a trigger, a command mechanism, mm -hmm. something that I have no control over, that this bomb suit can save my life. And I want to go back to my family, my, my loved ones. Mm -hmm. And the Staves Club is a means of documenting it, giving some publicity if they want it. Uh, to uh, their peers and for, for everybody to feel good that we made a difference. Wow. What a beautiful program. Um, and I want to ask, because on, on the off chance that maybe we have a listener that could be inducted or would like to share their story of how protective gear or the um, EOD suit saved their lives, how would they reach out yeah, they, all they have to do is reach out to any MedEng representative. Mm -hmm. uh, they go online at the MedEng uh, website, and they or they Google the, the Saves Club okay. uh, for MedEng, and uh, we'll we'll get to them. Um, actually, our first inductee is uh, Chris Cowan, who was a law enforcement bomb tech in Illinois, uh, and he was wearing one of our earlier generation uh, suits and helmets. I believe it was the UD seven generation. Um, uh, in the um, uh, in the mid '90s, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and he got blown up. It was uh, some biker war. There were explosives. He responded and he tried to do his job. And uh, you know, whatever dynamite or whatever explosives they had uh, blew up, and he was launched across uh, a fence and he landed somewhere. And uh, and uh, he was able to uh, you know to get up and walk and sustain really minor injuries. And um, eventually we recruited Chris uh, to train on our equipment as a technical training representative. And once the fire line got introduced into our uh, uh, lives, they had the safe spot. We said, what a wonderful idea. Mm -hmm. We know many people that have been blown up. Some are not willing to come forward, and we respect that. We don't push people. Right. But we want some of those stories that people are willing to share to go out there. Um, uh, and we want, we want to show our appreciation for using our equipment and, of course, being saved with it. So, Chris Cowan, uh, if, you, if you Google uh, the Saves Club MedEng Systems or you go to our website, uh, you, you'll see the Saves Club or if you reach anybody, uh, anybody from Edenge, uh, we, we will quickly connect you to the Saves Club. And uh, like I said, uh, there'll be an initial uh, interview, uh, maybe a little bit of a corroboration investigation. Mm -hmm. That's really minimal, but we got to make sure that this is a real story. Of course, uh, we'll try and understand the circumstances behind what happened. Uh, our engineering team, uh, we will do some calculations to see if. 
uh, it makes sense. We always try and learn from the Safes Club. Mm-hmm. Somebody gets blown up in our suit and they survive. We want to know what they were exposed to. Uh, does it make sense that this person survived? And uh, Do we need to update our injury models? Uh, do we need to reinforce the equipment better? Whatever it is, we want to learn from it. So we learn as much uh, from it as we possibly could when somebody survives uh, inside our suit. I love it. Yeah. It's it's celebrating the life was saved, but it's also in helping improve the suit for future EOD techs. So that's that's amazing. So I, I kind of want to... Yeah, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I had another incident a few years ago during the Iraq war. We get an email out of the blue by uh, somebody who turned out to be a sister of a, an Army EOD technician. And she says, oh, you don't know me, but thank you, thank you, thank you for saving my brother's life. And we said, well, what's this? Who's your brother? You know, and says, well, he was, uh, you know, so-and-so, uh, this rank uh, name, and he was in, uh, you know, some part of Iraq, and he, he was defusing a bomb, and it went off, and uh, he survived that, and then they tried to rescue him, and then he got blown up again, and he survived again. Oh, and, my gosh. You know, he, he got a bit injured, uh, but the person survived and came back and eventually uh, got a full-time job, and... Uh, and we were, you know, we were in touch with them. And uh, we were so happy. So how many of those things happen that people don't bring to our attention that could be brought to our attention? Well, there's probably many people. Wow. People don't like to advertise when a bomb went off. Yeah, yeah. That's but the Safe Club is there in case they want to share their lessons and the fact, the good news story. We're there and we're more than happy to receive them and give them a plaque and, and everything else that goes in there. Well, we're so happy to, to get the, the word out about the Saves Club because that's amazing. Um, and I love that it was his sister that reached out, you know? <laughs> she was yeah. so grateful. Um, so, Eris, I, I want to end the um, interview with um, asking you, what is the biggest piece of advice you would give an EOD tech today that, that's still in the business of disarming bombs? In our Blast Effects presentations... The, the, the key theme that comes out just by looking at, you know, the overpressure, the impact, the fragmentation, the heat, the fireball, everything, is distance. The bigger the distance from the device, the, the much safer it will be. All the threats that I mentioned dissipate very quickly, exponentially, geometrically, whatever the word that makes sense to people is. Very close to the device, they're at very high levels. Right at the device, if you're holding it, often it's on survivable levels. You start giving a foot, a few feet, uh, many feet, and all of a sudden, something that was very dangerous, if you wear a bomb suit, becomes marginally threatening. So, um, of course, it depends on the size of the device. If it's a very big bomb, you need more distance. But distance is your print, standoff distance. The more the distance you can keep away from the device, the safer one will be. Because an explosion, an explosive device are unpredictable. They may be very different. You don't know what kind of improvisation has taken place in an IED, an improvised explosive device. You don't know what kind of fragments are in there, what other agents might be there. But we know for sure that if you have more distance, you'll be safer. And then all the materials and technology we put in a bomb suit, and not only us, but you know other people, other competitors, well, they'll have a better chance of doing their job if some of the threat has been dissipated by the fact that it decays with distance away from the explosion. 
So uh, using remote tools, using robots, using telescopic manipulators, uh, things like hook and lines that everybody's familiar with, give you distance. When you have a device, don't stay closer longer than you need to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we recognize that somebody will have to go near the device to put an x-ray to do something, to investigate it. Fine. But try and keep that duration of close encounter to a minimum. Give yourself maximum distance by using the right tools and looking at where you can be for a safer positioning. So distance is your friend. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that great advice. Um, And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share all your knowledge and expertise on the bomb suit and giving us a glimpse of all the research, hard work, and passion that goes behind its development. Um, We are truly grateful for all you do to protect and educate our community. Um, We have a tradition here on Behind the Warrior, and we end every interview with a couple of questions about your favorite things. So my first question for you is, (laughs) what is your favorite type of food? Hmm. I like a lot of foods, and anybody that's seen me know I'm a big guy because I eat well. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know what? I would say that it's probably seafood uh, seafood pizza because I like pizza and I like seafood. What? And again, I like many other things. So if I have to choose one that combines some of my eating preferences, it's probably that. I have never in my life heard of seafood pizza. <laughs> I don't even think they have that in the United States. <laughs> oh, they do. You got to go to the right Italian restaurant. Oh, my gosh. Okay, great. Well, so no, I won't find joint. it in Pizza You're Hut, You're not going to get that in the fast food yeah. joint. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, what is your favorite movie? Uh, I have many, but they all tailor around uh, epics. So things like Pearl Harbor, Alexander the Great, Gladiator, Those are the types of movies that keep me awake, connect me to historical reality. And um, it's always interesting because uh, there's always some kind of body armor in there, whether it was ancient ancient body armor or uh, the Gladiator uh, and Pearl Harbor. uh, You know, there's always some kind of threat and protection in historical context. Well, you are consistent. (laughs) Uh, my last question is, what is your favorite vacation spot? Well, uh, I am of Greek descent, as you might be able to tell from the name, mm-hmm. not necessarily my looks because I look more Irish or Scottish. Uh-huh. Uh, so it, it's it's really the Greek islands. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's really neat. I've only seen the Greek islands, I think, uh, on a calendar I once had, and it was beautiful. So, yeah, but it's even better in reality. I bet, I bet. I'll have to put it on my bucket list. Well, again, thank you, thank you, Eris, so much for your time and for everything that you're you're doing for our community, and we wish you all the best in the future. Maria, thank you and your listeners and all those uh, valiant uh, heroes that go out there without getting much glory every day trying to protect all of us. And I want to thank you again. And uh, again, I'm I'm one of the front faces, but there's a whole team of people behind us, uh, both in R&D and manufacturing and people out there interfacing with the end users that make uh, make our team strong. Well, thank you, MedEng. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, 
please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.